This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we once again come to our time in our service to uh, dive into your word, our prayer again is, is as we just sang, that you would unstop our ears, that you would unfold our hearts, that you would unsheath your sword, and that, Father, you would drive your truth deep into our lives that you would focus our sight on the Son, that, that we would see Jesus in a new light, Lord, and that we would see Him with us. Father, I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. There is a saying that was made famous by a a 14th century poet named Geoffrey Chaucer that actually is attributed as far back as Aesop in the 5th century B.C. It says, too much familiarity breeds contempt. Now, contempt is a strong word in our language, so we might say in our vernacular that too much familiarity breeds indifference or apathy or something like that. Like, it's the idea that, that too much experience can, can make even the most amazing things humdrum, dull. Like, like shooting a gun for the first time. It's like, wow, it's loud, it's exciting, your blood's pumping, it's even a little bit scary. But even shooting, if done enough, can become monotonous. And unfortunately, the same thing can happen when we read the Bible. The incredible stories of failure and defeat, of victory and success, the salvation, the heroes, all of this can become monotonous and boring. It can become ordinary. 
which is why this morning I want to use this short story recorded for us by John to reignite your passion for the beauty of God's Word, for the intricacy of His Word. Because my hope this morning is to convince you to believe this, that, that what Jesus says in here is already at work out there. That, that's what I want to do this morning, is to persuade you that what Jesus says in here is already at work out there. But before we get there, let me show you why John says we should care. Even though I was a, let me say it this way, even though I only graduated high school because I know my chemistry teacher didn't want to see me again, John has made it easy enough for even a student like me to see how he has framed this story. Look again at, at the beginning of verse 46. John says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And then he closes the passage in verse 54 by saying, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So there's something about Galilee here that, that John wants to emphasize. But furthermore, notice how John transitions from the last story into our story this morning in verse 43. Look at 43 again. He says, After the two days, he, that's Jesus, departed for Galilee. For him, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Verse 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all he had done in Jerusalem. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee. So clearly John is emphasizing through repetition that Galilee has something important to do this morning with our passage. In fact, not only does he repeat Galilee six times in, in these short 11 verses, but he's also bookending this whole section in the gospel by pointing back to another time when Jesus was in Galilee. Flip back to chapter 2 real quick. If you look in verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And again, back in our passage, at the beginning of verse 46, John says, So he came to Cana in Galilee, referring back to where he had made the water wine. And if all of that isn't enough to make John's emphasis on Galilee even more conspicuous, do you remember what Jesus made such a big deal about to the Samaritan woman about worship? Well, didn't he make it abundantly clear that God is not about a place? He's not about a geographical location? In chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus made a big deal about how it wasn't the Samaritan temple in Gerizim or the Jewish temple in Jerusalem anymore, but that God would be worshipped in spirit and truth. So, however you cut it, whether it be through, through repetition or through this kind of ultra-contrast to the last story, for some reason, John keeps saying, Galilee, Galilee, Galilee. So even if you are as dense as I am, you have to ask, what's so important about Galilee? Why does it sound like John is kind of like he keeps interrupting himself throughout this story? Like, oh yeah, and did I, did I mention that this is in Galilee? Why does he keep doing this? 
Why does it sound like John is saying, if you want to get what Jesus has, you have to go to Galilee? Well, the Old Testament doesn't mention Galilee often, but when it does, it has some important things to say. For example, the last half of the book of Joshua God's detailing to Joshua how to divvy up the promised land to the 12 different tribes. But toward the end of those instructions, in Joshua chapter 20, God instructs Joshua to identify six cities that would be called cities of refuge. And the the reason for these cities of refuge was because in the Old Testament, if you committed murder, the law allowed for what was called an avenger. No, I'm not talking about Thor or Captain America. In the Old Testament, an avenger was usually the the closest male relative to the victim who was allowed by law to chase the murderer down, execute them, in order to restore justice to the family. But what if you committed involuntary manslaughter? What if you murdered someone by accident? I guess I'd say killed in that sense. The family of the victim doesn't really care about the details. The avenger is coming after you. Enter the cities of refuge. Because if you were able to make it to one of these cities of refuge, as long as you stayed within that city limits, if you had had accidentally killed somebody, you were safe until a formal trial could be had to prove your innocence. Here's the cool thing, though. Where was the first city that God mentioned as a city of refuge? It was in Galilee. Galilee was where the first city of refuge that God mentioned would be. In other words, Galilee is a place where desperate people dwell. Galilee is a place where people who needed protection fled. It's a place where people who were in fear of execution found refuge. So back in John, think about what he's doing. In the first four chapters, John keeps emphasizing how Jesus keeps showing up in Galilee. He keeps showing up in the place where people ran to escape judgment. He keeps showing up in the place where people fled who were in need of protection. That's not the only time that Galilee is mentioned in the Old Testament. Galilee is also mentioned again in 1 Kings chapter 9. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 9, Solomon had just completed the building of the temple and his palace. And, and, and First King tells us that Haram, the, the king of nearby Tyre, had given Solomon a bunch of gold and timber to complete these two buildings. So, in exchange, First King tells, First Kings 9 tells us that Solomon gave Haram 20 cities in Galilee. 20. But verse 13 of 1 Kings 9 says that when Haram got to Galilee and and finally laid eyes on what had been given to him, he said, what is this? It says, because it was an unpleasing place to him. And we know from the book of John that it was still that way in Jesus' time. If you remember when Philip tracked down Nathanael and said, hey, we found the Messiah from Nazareth, and what did, what did Nathanael say? Can anything good come from that place? In other words, not only is Galilee the place where 
people in need of protection fled, but it's also a historically unpleasing place. I mean, even 20 cities in Galilee wasn't a suitable exchange for the building materials for two buildings. So think about it. Put these two pieces together about Galilee and what do we see? We see that Jesus keeps going to an unpleasing place where the people desperately needed protection from judgment. So I have to ask, what's your address this morning? What's your address this morning? If Jesus keeps returning to an unpleasant place full of desperate people, would He be coming to you or going away from you? Like that little label, that little sticky return address thing you put on your envelopes, does it say a desperate person in an unpleasant place? Or does it say a comfortable person who's kind of got it figured out? How desperately do you need protection? Be honest with yourself. How desperately do you need salvation? How desperately do you want to be freed from the unpleasant place in which you dwell. Desperation, on the run, heartache, uncomfortable, unsatisfied, hurting, lost. Is that your address this morning? Because here's the thing, that's where this official from Capernaum went. This man desperate for salvation from the horrible effects of sin on the life of his son. He left his comfortable home, he left his, his success, he left his wealth, he left his authority, and fled to an unpleasant place in desperate need of Jesus. In other words, let me make this plain. If you want Jesus, if you want to be where Jesus is at work, you have to reckon you have to accept, you have to know that there are things about you, eternal things, things about this life that you cannot fix. You cannot work hard enough. You cannot do good enough. You can't elect the right politicians. There are things about this world that you cannot fix. You have to go to that place where you're desperate for help, desperate for protection, Desperate for salvation from the chaos and the heartache and the disappointment that your sin has wrought on your life. You have to go where people dwell who are not self-sufficient, who are not self-righteous, who are not self-satisfied. Because let me tell you one other thing the Old Testament says about Galilee. Let me tell you why you should want that to be your address. It's because Isaiah chapter 9 says that in that place, in the land beyond the Jordan, in the place of darkness, in the place of anguish, the place normal people find unpleasing, the place where people who need protection flee, Isaiah says in chapter 9, those are the people who have seen a great light. He says it's those people, the people who dwell in Galilee, who would first be introduced to the one called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Prince of Peace. And here stands Jesus returning to Galilee again and again and again like a, like a strobe light of salvation illuminating the darkness of these people's lives. So I, I don't know if John could have made it any clearer. If you want to see God at work in your life, quit acting like everything's great. Don't go to the place where everything's put together. Don't go to the place of success and comfort. Go to the unpleasing places in your heart. Flee to the place where you are in desperate need for His protection. Go to the place where Jesus rescued a doomed wedding and where a mother and father are beginning funeral preparations for their sick son. Go to that place and you'll find the everlasting at work. Go to that place and you'll find the, the great counselor giving comfort. Go to the place where weak, hurting people dwell. Be one of those people and you'll find the mighty God protecting them. It's beautiful how John knits this story together. Because what did this man find in Galilee? What did this official find when he went to Jesus? What, what, what does Jesus have for this man well, verse 50 ultimately says he had life for his son. But, but listen, this is so important. This is where too many Christians miss the whole point of this passage and others like it. Because too often, just like the crowd in this story, our culture thinks the whole point is that Jesus heals sick people. And I'm not saying that didn't happen. It did. Jesus healed this man's son. But if we read the text thinking that that's the point of this story is exactly what frustrated Jesus. Look at verse 44 again. It says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus is from the region of Galilee. Yet, verse 45, when he came to Galilee, they welcomed him. He just finished saying he shouldn't have any honor in Galilee, yet they welcomed him. Why? Because they saw what he did in Jerusalem and they wanted more. In other words, even though a prophet should have no honor in his hometown, even though that's the way things are, all these people welcomed Jesus because they had seen what he did in Jerusalem and they wanted to see more. Which is why when this official asks Jesus to come down, like, Jesus, I need you to be where my son is so you can do what you do. He says in verse 48, you won't believe unless you see the signs and miracles. And it's important to understand that the you in that sentence is plural. Jesus is saying, y'all won't believe unless y'all see signs and miracles. Meaning, Jesus is exposing here what too many in our culture believe, what they think, that these people didn't want a Savior. They wanted a Santa Claus. They wanted a wonder worker, not someone to worship. So, so, so what did Jesus want these people to see? If this passage isn't ultimately about Jesus healing this man's son, then what is it about? Well, John tells us. We've got to just read the Bible, guys. 
He tells us, look again at verse 54. He said, this was now the second sign that Jesus did. Sign. What do signs do? They point you to something. In other words, what Jesus wanted these people and us to see is that this miracle was a sign, meaning it was intended to point to something it was inherently not. Let me say that again, because this is what our culture gets all wrong. Thinking that this passage is about Jesus healing people, it's like telling your kids to go to Disneyland. Telling your kids you're going to Disneyland. And then in the desert outside of L.A., you pull over next to a road sign that says Anaheim, 100 miles, and you're like, we're here, kids! That's what it's like to think that this sign was about Jesus healing people. The Bible couldn't be any clearer. The true value of Jesus' miracles was not in what actually happened, but in, listen, who they pointed to who they pointed to. But these Jews, like, like too many Christians today, they're more excited about a sign out in the middle of the desert than the destination who's standing right in front of them. In other words, this is what we cannot let our familiarity turn to apathy. Jesus is offering not only this man, but these people and us so much more than just the healing of this boy. By healing this man's son, Jesus is pointing them toward the life giver. By healing this boy, Jesus is pointing them to the life giver. And so, rather than asking Jesus for more miracles, the question we ought to be asking ourselves is, how do I get what this miracle is pointing to? How do I get what this sign is pointing to, instead of just being satisfied with the arrow? How do I get the giver of life instead of settling for the sign? Because once we start to ask that question, once we start to ask how we get to what the sign is pointing to, the beautiful details of the rest of this story begin to fall in place. Meaning, listen, what this official, unlike all these people, what this official finally understood is this, what, what Jesus says in Galilee is already at work in Capernaum. Meaning this man didn't need Jesus to come down because what he says here in Galilee is just as powerful in Capernaum. Because listen, when you, when you figure this out like this official did, what you understand is that if you have Jesus' word, you have His presence. If you have Jesus' word, you have His presence. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Once you lay hold of that glorious truth, your life will never be the same. Once you lay hold of that glorious truth, that what Jesus says in here is already at work out there. You don't need Him to appear to work. You don't need Him to give you another sign all you need to do, all you need from Him is for Him to speak. And He has spoken. And then, just like this man, live like you believe He's standing right there. Because what Jesus says here 
is already at work out there. Because if you have His Word, you have His presence. So, maybe you're here this morning and you realize that you are living in a desperate place. You are a resident of the neighborhood of sinfulness. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize that that your address is a ruined life in the face of an almighty God. If that's you, if if you're here this morning and you are desperately ashamed of, of the unpleasantness of the sin in your life, if you realize that you need refuge from this judge, If that's you, then please listen, because this morning Jesus is telling you, just like this official in John chapter 4, all you have to do is run to me and believe. All you have to do is believe what I say in the Bible is already working out there. Because if you believe that, then the one who says, even though you are dead in your trespasses and sin, I can make you alive through my death and resurrection. The one who says that is standing right next to you if you believe it. Believe what he said in here because it's already at work out there. You want proof. You want proof that you can believe what he says in here is already at work out there? I'll give you a guess what we should do. Just read the Bible. Look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour. And the father knew it was the time when Jesus said, Your son will live. And he believed. In other words, the healing of his son was enough for this this official to believe. Is it enough for you? Is it enough for you to believe? That the word giver is with you. Well, if not, God's got more. In fact, He wants you to want more. God wants you to want more proof. He wants you to want something bigger, something greater. So He gave us another sign. Another miracle pointing toward that, that this, this Jesus is the giver of life. If you, if you want to believe that what Jesus says here is already at work out there, then Scripture says all you need do is look at the empty tomb. That's all you got to do. Look at Jesus walking out of the empty tomb, very alive, after, after defeating your sin and your death on your behalf. That's your proof. That's your proof that what Jesus says in here is already at work out there. So I ask again, what's your address this morning? Are you living on Hopeless Street? Is the grief and and heartache and pain of this life weighing you down? Like, like maybe you don't see an end to something that's out of your control, that's, that's wreaking havoc on your life. Well, friend, what Jesus says in here is that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Believe that what He says in here is already at work out there. Or maybe you live, live on Shame Street. 
that, that street where, where your sin has a grip on you that you can't seem to shake. It's that street where the lies, the accuser is, is whispering in your ear, gain traction. Well, Saint, what Jesus says in here is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ because the law of the Spirit of life has given you salvation from the law of sin and death. Believe what he says in here because it's already at work out there. Maybe your house this morning is on that dark, unlit street of anxiety. Maybe the powers of this dark world have have taken root in your heart and and there's a a fear you have that won't go away. Maybe something or someone has you anxious that that something is going to go wrong. Well, friend, what Jesus says in here is that if God is for us, who can be against us? Believe, believe that what he says in here is already at work out there. Or maybe this morning you reside on the cul-de-sac of suffering. Like circumstances and people and, and things who, who make your life miserable just keep circling right back around to your front door. Well, brother or sister, Jesus says in here, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Believe what he says in here because it's already at work out there. Believe what he says in here because it's already at work out there. Because if you have his word, you have his presence. And here's the thing. Every single one of those examples I just gave you, every single one of those promises I just read from his word, promises that we need only believe because they're already at work out there. Those promises, that's just one chapter of God's word. That's just a sampling of Romans 8. I didn't even include what he said about separating your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. I didn't say anything about how the hope that we have is anchored in the throne room of heaven with Jesus Christ. I didn't say anything about how he said, fear not for I am always with you. That's just one chapter of promises. And I could go on and on and on because there are thousands of promises. We need only believe what he said in here because they're already at work out there. Which means the last question we need to ask ourselves is the same question that John's been asking every week. It's the same question that was asked of this official in John chapter 4, and it's the same question he's going to keep asking for the rest of this gospel. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe what Jesus said in here is already at work out there? Because if you have His Word, you have His presence. He's right there with you if you have His Word. If you have His Word, you have the spring of living water flowing through you. If you have His Word, you have the One who's guarding you and your seat in glory standing right next to you. If you have His Word, then you have the presence of not just the giver of life, but the giver of life more abundantly with you 24-7, 365. The One to whom we sing, Jesus, there's no one like you. Jesus, we love you, ever adore you. Stand with me, please, and let's make that.